Welcome to What Do You Believe? You're here because you're curious, and I love that. I love asking people this question, what do you believe? We all believe in something, and perhaps you're asking yourself this question, and you're here because you are curious, like me. Thank you for joining me today, Melissa Unger. How are you? I'm great. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being (laughs) here. So uh, Melissa Unger, you are an artist in your own right. You are the founder and creator, creator, creatrice of Seymour Projects. And there are so many questions I have to ask you, but of course, you know, I always start the show with the question, what do you believe? I believe that we can change in each instant and that motion and mutability and flexibility are some of the most important aspects of life, Mm. I would say. That's beautiful. Um, I know that seems like maybe a strange answer, but that's where I'm at today. I found that as a 54-year-old, as our bodies become less flexible, it's increasingly important to be mentally flexible, emotionally limber, and resilient. And that's sort of the journey that I'm on now. I feel like my youthful intractability served me in early sort of visionary undertakings when I was like, this is the way it is, you know, and I sort of flipped my flag. And I found that as I age, the flexibility, and that doesn't mean giving in, it just means allowing for other perspectives, respecting different paces, Mm. just a general sort of movement. Do you know what I mean? And I think it sort of dovetails with sort of nature. And I think maybe that came out of the two year, you know, sort of slowdown in which I spent more time in nature, you know, than I ever have in my life and became sort of intimately connected to it on a really kind of profound level, like on a granular level and watching, you know, season after season change, you know, with nothing else happening um, and just allowing, right allowing and all that mutability. I don't know if that that's a very long answer to a short question. No, but I love the answer. And it's out of all of the people I've spoken to. And when I ask this question, it's my favorite question because I love the different answers. And this is certainly a different answer. And I love the fact that you said flexibility because I agree that one of the keys to life is being adaptable, being an adaptable person to any circumstance. And I think what you're saying about the pandemic showed us that here we were having to stay home and we had to adapt to that. You know, we had to adapt to a lot of unforeseen circumstances and we didn't know what was going on. So I agree with you. It was this flexibility and adaptability is so important So in terms of nature, when you say the last two years, you know, how did you get in touch with nature? I mean, were you just every day? I mean, you do these beautiful watercolor paintings every, which I love, and I love following you on your Instagram, and we're going to tell everyone your Instagram after, but 
you draw beautiful photographs of flowers. And so how did you get in touch with this side of nature in yourself and externally? Well, it's kind of a two-pronged answer. The first answer is I'm someone that has a tremendous amount of energy in my body. And depending on whether you want to pathologize it or you want to celebrate it, there are two different answers. One, you could say that I had a series of traumas when I was growing up that made me very nervous. And so it's anxiety in my body. Do you know what I mean? Or you could depathologize it and just said, I was born with an extra little spark, you know, a little kick in my mm. And so when the pandemic started and my typical outlets, which are, again, if we pathologize or if we celebrate workaholism or, you know, fiery creativity and constant movement and constant production and constant creation were kind of muted because, you know, everything kind of slowed to a halt. I was still left with the fire in the belly and nothing to do with it, right? So mm. the initial connection to actual nature began because I couldn't see other people. I found myself living alone during this period and I would literally wake up and I would have to walk five to 10 miles every day just to burn off the excess energy that exists within my system. And I live in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And so that allows me the possibility to go to Fort Greene Park and to walk to Prospect Park. And it's a particularly verdant neighborhood. So even all of the, the brownstone gardens are very verdant. And, you know, the first year, I was sort of the the speck that floated along the seasons. And so I would do these morning walks and it went from, you know, summer flora to winter to, to fall to, you know, you could see like all that stuff. Mm. And it reminded me to go back to what we were speaking of earlier of the Bruce Lee sort of concept, which exists in martial arts, which is be like water. Right. And yes. I think back to the beginning of the flexibility conversation that we were having, I think a lot of people, myself included, sometimes, mistake flexibility for a kind of pushoverness, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, mm -hmm. if you're like, you know, are you a people pleaser? Are you flexible? Like the line is very, very blurry. And I think what I like about Bruce Lee, I'm sure he got it from some old text, but the metaphor of water is that you actually never lose the essence of who you are when you're flexible, if you hold that in your mind. So Water is water, and then it can be ice, or it mm. can be mist, or it can flow. It can take the shape of whatever container it's in. It yes. can, you know, go over a rock, and even though the rock is harder, over time the water can erode it. And no matter what shape it's taking, whether it's ice or mist or flow, it's still inherently water, right? So yes. if we think about ourselves, I don't lose the Melissa-ness of Melissa by being flexible. Do you know what I mean? I just get to experience myself in myriad different forms. And therefore, I get to interact with the environment in myriad different ways, which means sometimes I can be in a sort of masculine energy, sometimes in a feminine energy. So I think that flexibility just allows for a larger panoply of life experiences while we're here and mm. people, you know, so I think that that's something interesting to think about when we're being flexible and even in, you know, the breakdowns of communication that are happening in our culture right now, seeing someone else's perspective doesn't mean agreeing with someone else or 
abandoning your own. It only means having the gymnastics to sort of just look at from a different perspective, you know, so I don't know if that answers, but so I just got out to nature in that way. The watercolors themselves, when, when the flowers come, it's just because I'm in a flowery, you know, mood and I'm doing something really what the watercolors came out of was in earlier parts of my life. As I said, I'm 54 now in my twenties and thirties, I suffered a tremendous amount of sort of anxiety. Like that was like worse workplace anxiety. And I was in very high pressure jobs and that needed a lot, I mean, all in the arts, but you know, not, I say right. that people think I'm in the neonative natal intensive care unit. No, I was like working on movie sets and stuff. So it was like, right. let's call it a false sense of urgency. Right. But right. there, there was <laughs> this fabricated sense of, you know, oh my God, the cappuccino is tepid. Like it's like someone died, you know? And so there was this like, you know, crazy sense of, you know, high stakes drama all the time, you know, and that every tiny mistake was like super amplified, you know, Mm -hmm. by, I know it well, like it was just, yeah, it was the tone (laughs) of the eighties and nineties and certain industries in New York. And then there's some personal things from my childhood that, you know, contributed to and exacerbated that. So it was this cocktail of like, you know, tremendous anxiety that led to, you know, mild OCD of me, like double checking, triple checking, you know, and, and a clamping down and a a certain, you know, like a, like a little bit of, you know, a rigidity to like lists and double checking and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in my mid thirties, when I tried to sort of heal that, I began with the very classic, you know, morning pages kind of vibe. And it was just me sort of, you know, vomiting out all my anxiety, you know, onto mm. the page so that I could literally, like if my, my mind was, was a container, I could literally empty it out so that I could actually have room to do work and to, to do my day, you know, and to interact with other people. Because if not, it would have just been filled with my own cacophonous and anxious thoughts, right? So emptying it out on paper every morning literally created like a space for something else to enter. Um, and over the years, I create, I, I sort of experimented with a number of different similar types of practices to alleviate my anxiety and those, you know, then I put those in the Seymour space, which we can talk about later, but just to finish this thought. And then what happened was, is as I thankfully healed myself and my anxiety abated, I remained with this morning practice of waking up at least an hour or two before I had any commitment, which means that I sometimes have to get up at five in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Or six in the sure. morning. Yeah. But I would always get up to create this moat or sense of peace within myself so that whatever the day threw at me, I had this soft space within myself that was familiar that I could come back to so that I would be less perturbed. And so once I I very rarely have those anxious thoughts anymore, I only have them perfunctorily around, like if I begin dating or if there's like a crisis or, you know, but in, in day-to-day operations, I, I don't experience anxiety anymore right. in that way. And, but I, but I still really got into the habit of this morning time. And so when I moved back to New York after 14 years in Paris and, and running the space and being under, you know, genuine pressure, I took a year off 
And I was like, what am I going to do with my mornings? And I was like, oh, I want to play. Like, I don't want to write in like black paper, black pen in a notebook, you know, or I was like, what if I just played, you know? And I literally went to Blick Art Art Store down the block from my house and bought one of those like $20, you know, watercolor palettes that you give your kid, you know, and the cheapest possible paper. And I just started fooling around, you know, and I realized that it was a very sacred space in which I wasn't self-censoring and I wasn't second guessing myself and I just let it flow. And I think that that's why people have connected with them so much because I started posting them on Instagram right away, even when they were kind of crappy. And I think that it's been really fun for people to watch the evolution And I think that they, they think that they're responding to the watercolors, but I think really what they're responding to is the energy behind the watercolor, you know, Mm. and it's the, the, maybe the freedom that I, that I, I think it's freedom that they're responding to and playfulness that they're responding to more than the actual artistry. I think they're responding to the energy that's behind them. The energy, well, knowing how much amazing energy you have, knowing you, I mean, yes, and of course they come through in your in your paintings, but there's this thread that I clearly, you know, in what you're saying, and then and also in your company and your Seymour project, it's it is all about play, isn't it? It's about when you know, of course, the way you describe it is you know, a therapeutic tech-free playground and play things for adults, a place where people can come and just let their mind free, free from whatever it is. And mostly a digital detox, right? I mean, so can you talk more about Seymour Project and sort of the idea around it? And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, it's fascinating. Well, what's what's really interesting about it, even for me, is that I didn't set out to create a company. Like I wasn't like, Oh, there's a gap in the market. Like, let me like, you know, the post-it guy or like whatever, you know, he was like, well, actually it's more like the post-it guy. The post-it guy was like, I'm tired of looking for tape. Every time I leave my wife a note, I wish there was paper with tape on the back. Right. Right. I mean, that's how like the most incredible things happen, honestly. And then it's the the fucking post-it, do you know what I mean? So, and and you're like, how did I, how did I not think of that? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Necessity is the mother of invention. So there's, that's, there are kind of two ways, you know, innovation happens. One is like that. It's like literally like, you know, I want a thing for that thing and there's no thing for that thing. So let me make that thing. Right. And then what happened for me, which was I had some obstacles in my emotional and sort of psychosocial life that were kind of blocking me. And in searching for ways to move forward myself, I sort of created this aggregate, you know what I mean, of things. Um, But what was, what's been really interesting. So for me, it started like, I just started doing stuff. Like I started, uh, I started to become interested in my mid thirties in spirituality and, you know, all sorts of different things. And it began just with like research. And I think the way that I learn is I learn by doing like some people learn by reading, some people learn by, you know, in different ways. And I'm just one of those people, like I need to like, like if I go into a store, I can't just look at the shirt. I have to touch it. Right. Or I have to like, I'm very like hands-on. It's almost like I can't process 
learning unless I'm actually doing it. I, I don't know if I'm missing like a theory of mind thing or something, but I literally have to do it mm-hmm. to like to, to, un- to understand it. Right. 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 Um, and so what's funny about the descriptor that you just read is a descriptor that is brand new for 2022. And it's what we've always been doing. So Seymour is 10 years old. It's a decade long project, but I could not have as succinctly described it to you 10 years ago because I was healing myself and I had a blind spot about what was lacking in my own life. So Mm. it's like saying to someone who's blind, like describe the color red or something. You're like, you can be like, well, it's kind of warm maybe it's maybe it's maybe the color red feels like heat do you know what I mean maybe yes it feels like like here's maple syrup maybe the color red is thick do you know what I mean and it's like how do you describe the color red to someone that can't see the color red right and if someone says to you what are you doing and you don't know that it's red that you're describing because you've never experienced it you're talking sort of backwards into it. So I realize now that that's what happened to me. I was a person I grew up in a, in an environment of tension by, you know, now I've come to realize no fault of my parents, but I don't want to go too deep into the personal thing. Everybody was doing their best, but there was a lot of tension and I didn't have a lot of opportunities for play, attunement, Mm. connection, yeah. safety, haven, um, consistency. You know, I didn't have a lot of room for that. So I didn't even know as an adult because I was so performative in business and my life was going so well from the outside, I didn't realize that I was lacking in those things. Yes. And so I just started making these things that I was looking for something and I didn't know if I, what I was looking for. I don't even know if this, I sound like a crazy person. And, and in looking for this thing, <laughs> I built all of these, all of these things and more and more people aggregated to it. And yes. so to answer your question, we were creating to make it more concrete for people. They were a series of pop-up projects where you would connect with yourself, you would do a drawing, you would disconnect from technology. And the reason I chose technology was that I felt that it was sort of the ill of our age, right? And Mm. it was, it was, it was an interrupter. And it was something that was intruding on your day. And you were becoming its bitch rather than you using it as a tool, right? And the environment that I grew up in, again, without blaming anyone, were people intruding and crossing my boundaries and, and not allowing me room to, to flourish. Do you know what I mean? At, at my own pace, like nature, like a flower. It's, it's almost like a bonsai, like constantly cutting it. And that's sort of what society does to us, right? Even it, without challenging family systems. It tells us like to go to school, you have to go a certain hour, you have to do this, you walk on the sidewalk, you do, you know, there are all, there are thousands of rules. Yeah, we're constantly shooting on ourselves, shooting on ourselves. Constantly, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's how we, you know, so even if it's not nefarious intent, it's, it's, we're constantly bonsai, like, it's like, we'll cut a little here, cut a little there, you know, and technology at the time was just, you know, the sort of inflection point was that it was the beginning of you know, tether technology where we were, you know, constantly available. Like I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember having a receptionist at my job, which then went to my assistant, which then went to me. And, you know, so there were 10 firewalls before you got to me. And then 
on the weekends, I think people of a certain age remember like when the phone rang at the dinner table after 7 p.m., we would be like, who is ringing after 7 yeah. p.m. at night? Like how, how, <laughs> how dare awful. they? Like how dare yes. they? Or like a phone call that would ring in a family home at like eight in the morning meant someone was dead. Do you know what I mean? And yes. it's like now I get, <laughs> you know, business calls at three o'clock in the morning when I go pee, you know? Mm. And so there's such an infringement, you know? And so I drew a parallel between what was happening in with these sort of tether tech devices with what I had experienced working, let's just call it, and being around, let's say, high-maintenance individuals, right? And, and in my case, because it started in early childhood, it sort of disconnected me from myself. So I realized that I, I wanted to create spaces where people could reconnect to themselves. So the, the biggest Seymour project was the one in Paris that existed for three years, and it was a spa for the mind, and it was a tech-free zone, and it was literally a place where you could disconnect from technology to reconnect with yourself, right? Yes. And so that was that notion. And where you you're correct in seeing a thread in everything that I do is that it's whether it's the watercolors or, you know, and I wrote a novel also, and that was me searching for broken parts of myself. It's quite dark. And when I wrote it, I don't think I realized what was happening and it was just fractured self. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Seeking Mm -hmm. to integrate and be whole. Um, But I don't think that I understood it. And I think that that's, what's really interesting about, aging and perspective is that I created this body of work that I would not have been able to discuss with you in a harmonious way up until like this year. And in fact, there's the joke that we can tell, right? Is that we tried to do this podcast two years ago. And and I was like, (laughs) I can't speak because I was in a complete transition phase. And I was in a, in a sort of uh, mutating stage. And I think what's exciting about one's fifties is certainly in my case, I can't speak for everyone because everyone has a different journey, but I've this pause that I've been able to take even before the pandemic, because I took a year off. But if you're constantly tilling the field, if you never let the field lie fallow, you're constantly sort of digging up what you've planted, you know, and yes. sometimes you have to just let it sit for a minute so that you can see like what has actually happened and in this quiet I've been able to gain perspective on what I have been producing and creating for the last decade that I didn't understand what I was doing you know what I mean and I think that and it's only now that I that I see that it's all been about my own healing and the only thing that I'm really happy about is that I and this is what I would encourage anybody that is fearful about sharing their work for fear that it's not good enough, it's please always share it because even if it only helps one person, it, it helps, you know? So my novel gag is a novel, but it came from my subconscious and it wasn't a blockbuster, but I still get some fan letters and people connect with it. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, and if, if, and even if it only helped me, it's that that's enough because then my consciousness is elevated from that exercise and then even in a very tacit, light way, we elevate consciousness in all of the points of consciousness around us, right? So if I'm less angry, I'm not bitchy to the deli guy. If I'm more integrated, I'm looser with a compliment. If I'm calmer, I'm not bringing in a toxic energy to the bank. I'm not, you know, yes. so even in these very, very tiny things that we do when we do the work 
you know, on our own consciousness, even if it doesn't result in, you know, the Pulitzer Prize or in, you know, an Academy Award winning movie, it doesn't matter. It's like you're working out your stuff. And in doing so, you're certainly in my case, you know, integrating and entering into a harmony with myself that can only have a ripple effect, even if it if it's invisible, right? And I yes. think that's another thing that we are much too focused on in Western culture, which is results. Do you know what I mean? Like you're you're very sweet to say like, oh, we'll we'll do your Instagram after, but it doesn't it almost doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? If three people, oh, listen, I'm like, tagging, if, if, I'm tagging yeah. you on your Instagram. I mean, you're no, going to get tagged, and you're going to. And and but what I'm saying is, no, I know what you're results. saying. I know, I know. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't of have course, to be that. Of course, of yeah. course. No, uh, listen. I'm in agreement with everything you're saying. I mean it takes time to see what our purpose is sometimes. And it's sometimes we're going to go through many iterations of what we're doing, but they're always, if you look back, if I look back to my career, there's always some sort of, there's a string, there's a thing, there's a, there's a connective tissue that runs through everything that we do because ultimately it is who you are, right? Like your tagline says, we help you see more which is a play on Seymour. And I think it's so brilliant because it's like part of your purpose because you had to see more and you're helping others do the same. And it's always been your purpose and part of your purpose, right? I would agree. And I think we all have that. And you know, yes. my father's name is Seymour. His nickname was Cy, but my father had multiple sclerosis and he died when I was 33. And I began this journey when I was 36, when I moved to Paris. And I feel like, you know, I think it's Rilke that said, let us not squander the hour of our pain. I think that our pain and our pleasure are equal, right? And so I suffered because of my father's suffering because of his illness. But mm. had I not grown up as, as a child of someone that was in a wheelchair and had challenges, I wouldn't be the person that I am either. Do you know what I mean? So it's like sure. we, we, we take both together creates who we are. And I agree with what you were saying. I think each of us in our own way, and this is just a personal worldview that I think you and I align on. And I don't think that necessarily everyone, you know, people have different storytellings about the meaning of life, but you and I, I think are in harmony on this one is that, yes, I personally believe that we come into this world with a core an inner spark an essence of who we are. And the journey of life is to keep that spark alive and remove all obstacles to it, right? So some people are born and it's a very bright flame and they it happens right away and they fall into their purpose immediately, right? So like, I, I don't, can't think of, but like a young tennis player or like a prodigy or like sometimes mm. it's very clear and they, they step into that immediately, right? Yes. Um, and then others like me, it's, there were obstructions to it because there were false narratives for other people's pain around me that was inadvertently dumped on me so that I couldn't see myself. Right. So my journey has been, you know, wiping the mirror clean of soot, so to speak, so that mm. I can actually look at myself existentially right. through clear eyes and not through the pain of others. Because 
unfortunately, and again, I, you know, I always feel very protective of my parents because I really believe, even though I was inadvertently hurt, I'm sure they didn't mean it and they loved me very much, but they couldn't see over their own pain to mine, right? So, so you unfortunately get, if someone has pain, they look at you and their pain sort of the word in French of the town, like it comes off on you. Do you know what I mean? And mm. so I would like look at myself with the self-loathing and the criticism that my parents might have felt toward themselves. And so my journey has been to rewrite the story. And so now I'm getting closer and closer, you know, and that doesn't mean that I see myself as you know, indemnified of my faults. Like I have, you know, my faults, but I can see myself more clearly like, and be like, Oh, sometimes I'm shitty and sometimes I'm nice or sometimes I'm this. But when someone tells you you're awful your whole life, you, you can't bear the thought that you're awful. So you, you suppress all of that, right? It's Jungian shadow work. And you're like, I'm not any of those things. And then you're always like, Oh, I'm so I'm great. I'm light. I'm in a good mood. I'm whatever. And you completely yeah. abandon all the dark sides of yourself and then they come up in toxic ways, you know? Of so for course. me, it's been a, re, a, re, a rebalancing of being, yeah, sometimes I'm a bitch and sometimes I'm not, but I could never have said that five years ago. I would have been like, I'm never a bitch. I'm the nicest person because I just yes. didn't see that about myself because it was too painful, you know? So all of the projects, all of the work, all of the creativity that I do, even though I have not been aware of it until recently, is for me a journey back to self and to to an integration and where in yeah and just the one thing I would say that saved me from being like completely navel gazy and just like horrifically self-involved is that I have an inbuilt desire to give and for community and for social work and it's just like part of who I am so every time I do something and that's not it's not a talent. It's something that came. It's not because I'm generous. It's just like came, I came off the assembly line like this. So I feel like I shouldn't get credit for it. But if so if I'm making something, I share it, you know? And so that I feel like it's been the saving grace of my life is that even though I've, it's been a somewhat creatively solipsistic decade because I, I shared everything so publicly I am grateful that it has helped a lot of people and connected with a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? And that, yeah. that makes me feel less like an asshole. That's just like looking at my own belly button all the time. Well, I mean, I think at some point, you know, when things start to break down, you have to start to ask yourself the questions and you have to ask the powerful questions about yourself or to yourself. You know, it's like you're asking questions. You're saying, like, what's going on? What's happening? And then, you know, out of that, you know, of course, becomes more self-awareness and hopefully answers. And, you know, when I'm when I'm hearing you tell your story, it's like I'm also relating it to like certain parts of my life when, you know, things were just really hard and and they were hard and nothing was going right. And I think it was just the universe, like forcing me to ask the questions like you know, I agree a hundred percent. Right. And then you start to do that and then things kind of start to make a little sense. And then you realize you get a bit of a, a reprieve, you know, you get a bit of a break and then something spiritual happens. It's like, I feel like it's a textbook. 
It's like textbook. No, but it is. And then, and it happens again and again and again and yes. again. And when I was in the middle of it, I reached when Seymour became, because it was the, the space itself. So Seymour Projects is like Columbia Pictures. And then each project is like a movie, right? So Seymour Projects is like the head thing. And then we do the Seymour space and then we do pop-ups and then we have a magazine and then we have objects. And it's been, you know, somewhat on hold for the last two years and it's going to ramp up again in 2022 um, with new projects and stuff. But when I was at sort of, I would call like the peak experience was the Seymour space because I was kindly funded by a dear friend of mine to create this incredible space for, for the community. And she, I mean, she was incredibly generous with the funding. I didn't mean the space was incredible. I meant like it was an incredible opportunity is what I'm trying to say. And I got a lot of really positive accolades for that and like tons of press. And even in my humility, I had a moment where I was like, this is it. I'm there. I'm fixed. I, I got it. Like I'm, you know, and then life throws you mm. curveball after curveball. Like we opened the day after the Charlie Hebdo massacres, like, and then six months later, the terror attacks happened and mm. it was, you know, it yeah. seemed like, Oh my God, it's sort of like opening in a pandemic. It was like, Oh my God, seriously, like, how are we going to get? And it turned out that weirdly it, I thought I was doing like an innovation thing and a creativity thing. And I realized that I was actually doing something much more profound to do with healing, which I might not have fully realized so quickly had, and I'm not saying I'm grateful that those horrible things happened, but what I'm saying is that we must accept as these things happen. Do you know what I mean? And exactly. And And that was your spiritual, in a way, it was like, that was your spiritual moment, right? That was something that But what I'm trying to, to get to is that we're, we are on the wrong road when we think that there's an attainment. Like I was like, Oh, I'm there. And now I'm sitting on top of my mountain. I've, I've cracked it. It's, I've noticed that it's, it's the only thing that changes that the waves keep coming. The only thing that abates and gets easier is your rigidity. If we come back to the beginning of the conversation And that's why, like, even things like surf your mind and all these things that I was talking about early on, I don't think I even understood the profundity of what I was saying. It was almost like they were given to me, but I didn't really get it. And the sort of, there were a lot of surf analogies in the early days. And and really, the surfing is the notion of the waves will crash. It's never going to stop life while you're alive. And you don't want it to stop because that means you're dead, right? So the waves will keep coming. You just need to be more agile. So whereas at the beginning, when you begin surfing, you don't know how to, your knees are scuffed up. You don't know how to get on the board. You're drinking the salt water all the time. The board like smashes you in the head and you're bleeding and whatever. And then by the end, the waves are still coming. It's exactly the same ocean. You're just a better surfer. And you can even maybe have like, you know, a Pepsi in your hand while you're, yeah. you know, on the board, you know, and you're like, you yeah, one. And so that's sort of where I'm at now with the playfulness that only really came into the equation, even in the language of Seymour recently, was that now that I know how to surf without white knuckling, and I understand that the waves are going to keep coming, and that I believe in my own resiliency, yes. and I believe in my own capacity to weather any storm. Now I can play and now I can see the things that I used to perceive as terrifying threats as sort of like shoots and ladders or something. Do you know what I mean? As sort of the game of life and just as like a new 
kind of challenge or a new door to go down. And so you open the door and you're like, oh, oh, this one's a slide. Oh, okay. This one's, you know, like, you know, and this one's, and then you just kind of relax into it. And, and well, there it's, was it's, a, it's um, a manipulation yeah. of energy. It's like figuring out how, when these things come at us to manipulate it in a way where we're not looking at it as a personal affront. It's just, it is what it is. And how we react right. to it is what makes us who we are. Right. And I would say that what I've understood now, you know, in five decades into it, is that it is manipulating energy like the water analogy that I use. But it it comes from being able to cultivate an an inner sense of safety and an internalized sense of safety that is not predicated on conditions outside of yourself. Yeah. So that if you can feel safe whilst the world is on fire, then you are truly safe. And that is its unconditional sense of safety, which means it's not predicated on conditions external to yourself. And now that is a tremendously difficult thing to attain. I mean, that is like monk level, you know, it's like ninja level consciousness stuff. But some people have it. There, some people are born with it. Like you see like really calm people or, you know, perhaps people that are like first responders or, yeah. you know, there's certain types of personalities of people that are just have that innate sense of safety and that innate sense of calm that are like, you know, it's literally like, or firefighters or whatever, you know, they are laser focused because they believe in, they can get out of the building. And if they panicked, you know, they would not be firefighters. You know what I mean? So I think that it's cultivating that inner sense of safety. If for some reason it was removed from you in childhood, you know, which for various reasons it wasn't me. And I think that that's what's dangerous sort of about, any kind of practice or doctrine or discussion in which sweeping generalizations are made when people say, well, you gotta, or it's like this, or these are the steps or one, two, three, four, and then you get, because it's really different for everyone. And it's like, some people are born with that innate sense of safety and they don't need any of this. And so often the people that we call you know, non-spiritual or unenlightened aren't necessarily unenlightened. They're just, they were not broken at the beginning. And so they don't need to go on this journey because they're already just functioning with a sense of playfulness toward life. So I certainly saw that, you know, in certain aspects of my family, people that I was with my cousins that I was, I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I would be slightly disdainful at their frivolity. And I would be Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, they're so superficial. And now I realize I'm like, they're not superficial. They're just playful. And I was just really in crisis and serious. And I couldn't see the, I I was something about their lightheartedness made me uncomfortable in my own pain. And so I was like, that's stupid what they're doing. Like I'm so much cooler as an intellectual or whatever. And I'm not sure. I think there's room for everyone as long as you're not hurting someone, you know, or infringing on someone's rights or, you know, doing something awful. But it's like, I think not everyone needs this. Not everyone needed what I was selling at the Seymour space, you know? And it's so easy to say, oh, they're unenlightened because they don't get what I'm doing. It's like, no, maybe they're just not broken and they don't need to be fixed. And they're already, like, I sometimes erroneously thought that I was ahead and frequently I was actually behind. Do you know what I mean? In some ways, then ahead and others. And, you know, it's very, it's very slippery, very slippery. And so, you know, anytime we judge, it's not a good, not a good look. And the the koan that I had sort of above my desk for a very long time when I was in the period that you were describing for yourself where the universe keeps throwing shit at you, you know, and you're like, really? Um, (laughs) And I had a thing and it said, it said, fall seven times, stand up eight. 
and it's an old proverb and it's basically that's all it is like what is the difference between success and failure getting up one more time than you were knocked down and that's it it's that simple and so when I had that like I would be like I don't got and, and even when I moved back to New York I didn't think I had another round in me I was so exhausted and I was like I'm just gonna like you know do whatever you know and then it slowly came back. So sometimes it doesn't mean like get up fighting. It just means don't give up. And it doesn't mean don't give up in a rigid, tenacious way of this is, you know, and I'm not the first to say this, like, and I'm not the first to say anything, by the way, because everything that we know is an aggregate of what has existed right. in the world before us. And we're just synthesizing it through the filter of our own perception. But is that if you are intent on something happening a certain way in a certain time, I can curse on this, right? You're fucked. All yeah. your job is to just be like, this is how I want to feel. This is what my goal is like. And so I kind of reverse engineer. Like when I got back to New York, I was like, how do I want this decade to look? And I was like, I want it to be peaceful, balanced and joyful. Mm. And I wasn't like, I want Seymour to make a million dollars. I want my book to be published. I want my watercolors to take over the world. I was like, I want to be joyful, balanced, and peaceful. And then all of the other stuff, I was like, I will reverse engineer whatever income I need or whatever, you know, my days look like into that. Whereas I spent the whole first half of my life chasing specific goals versus chasing a feeling of how I wanted to feel every day of my life. Right. And I think yeah. it's that, I think it's Annie Lamott that said, I'm terrible at remembering exactly like who the attributing I'm terrible with attribution because I ingest so much data, but is it's she says, how you spend your seconds is how you spend your minutes is how you spend your hours is how you mm. spend your days mm. is how you spend your weeks is how you spend your years is how you spend your life. So if you're coming from a place of striving, hysteria, panic, worry, like, well, that's your life. And so it's like, that was a yeah. wake up call for me. I was like, that's definitely how I was living, you know? Well, that's an incredible quote. I don't know if I actually have ever heard that quote before. Right? It's so basic, but it's so drilling it down to that. It's literally like, and sometimes I catch myself because, you know, even now, like I've done you know, a lot of work. And so I'm, I'm really, I've transcended like a bunch of shit, but it's like, when I'm sweating the small stuff, I'll just be like, what are you doing? Like what, like, yeah. you're never going to get those seconds back, you know? So it's like, that doesn't mean you don't worry. You don't go to the dark place and you don't do what I guess the self-help community now is calling toxic positivity. It's not a question of not feeling the feels, you know, it's not saying like everything's fine and being like candid and like everything's fine. It's like, you feel the feeling, but you just, you try not to get stuck on something that is beyond your control, you know? Right. Right. Like, like getting up in the middle of the night and worrying about something, just go back to bed. It's still going to be there in the yeah. morning. Yeah. 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 And another thing that helped me is another <laughs> phrase that I read somewhere, right? No, but it's fine. No, it's, but just be like, I mean, it's about safety. It's about faith, but not necessarily in a religious sense. It's about shifting, you know, I don't know your story in depth, but people that have had, tragedies or have had difficulties like I have, it's like, I live in a world where anything bad that can happen will, right? That was the, my childhood was, even though I was, I grew up in a, in a financially privileged environment, I had 
tragedy sort of after tragedy and drama after drama. And so my, my worldview was anything bad that can happen well, and I just had waiting for the other shoe to drop. And mm-hmm. in my mid thirties, yeah. when I was able to shift my worldview to anything good that can happen well, yes, it's, I mean, it's heavy lifting, right? It's not something that I, I didn't round the corner of that easily in socks, like on a parquet floor. Like it was an arduous turn to go from anything bad that can happen well to anything good that can happen well. But I, it was like turning the fucking Titanic around, you know, but once I was able to fully turn the boat of my consciousness around from everything bad that can happen well to everything good that can happen well, it amplified my sense of safety and my sense of hope. And therefore it increased my capacity for risk, you know, because I was like, oh, well, I can take a risk because anything good that can happen well. And then when something doesn't go my way, another phrase that's helped me is this or something better. So it's sort of Mm. like, you know, you come in and you just believe that that the universe or whatever your belief system is going to send you this or something better and that you just have like upper limits limitations of what you think is possible for yourself. So it's like you see an apartment and you're like, oh, my God, this is the apartment. And then you're like, someone else gets it, you know, and you're like devastated and you're like, nope, I thought that that was the best apartment because in my capacity of conjuring you know, the best for myself with my consciousness limited at this thing. I think that that is the best thing. And then you find out two weeks later that something else is like way better for you. And, you know, you couldn't even have imagined it because you didn't know that that neighborhood had that thing or, you know, whatever, you know? And so it's so, it's another thing of like the sort of hubris of humans. Do you know what I mean? That it's like everything that you know in your brain is yesterday's knowledge it's like a chair is a chair because someone told you it was a chair and like your whole concept of the world is based on dead information of things that you already know like you know how to get to the deli from your house because you've walked there already right you know how to like do whatever because so that's all dead information and when you base your entire worldview on dead information it's so limiting if you have faith and step into the power of creation then you allow yourself to be like, oh, now it's vital and now it's new. And so the watercolors, like when I started making them, really loving, well-meaning people were like, why don't you take a class? Or like, here's this book. And I'm like, no, that is literally the opposite of what I want to do. Like, I want to do whatever happens, happens. And I improved and I learned how to do figurative and not just abstract and great, you know, but I didn't want to learn it. I wanted to be learned by it or whatever. Like I wanted it to come through me. I wanted to figure it out organically, so to speak, you know? And so knowing that this is something better is coming for you. And, and, you know, you have to remind yourself, like I've, it's not like every day I walk around and I'm like this fairy floating through the world. Like I have like, you know, (laughs) sleep, sleepless nights and like drama, like boy stuff and like, you know, all sorts of stuff, but I get myself through it now by having those types of conversations with myself, as opposed to drinking like half a bottle of wine or binge eating, or do you know what I mean? Like I, or doing what other self-destructive mechanisms that I used to use in my youth, you know? And so this or something better helps with disappointment. And it's not toxic positivity. It's like, you can be bummed. You can be like, wow, I'm fucking bummed. That sucks. You know, right, right. And but even, I'm bummed, and, and even, but yeah. it's going to get better or I'm bummed Maybe. and I'm living in yeah. that. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of pushing through it, but I have hope and faith that, 
you got to have hope and you have to have faith yeah. is what you're saying yeah. that things are going yeah. to get better and you will have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but the hardest challenge for people and certainly for people like myself was they feel like empty words because saying the synthesis of the podcast being you have to have open faith is like, oh, wow, we just listened to this for an hour to be like, hope. like people have been saying that forever. It's the hardest to have hope and faith when you have no evidence of hope and faith, right? right and right. that is true hope and faith. So true hope and faith is like, I see no reason to be hopeful. And I see no reason to have faith because you have never showed me universe that I should be hopeful in this category. And I should have faith in this category. So for some people, it's money. For me, it wasn't. I grew up with wealth, but I didn't have certain interpersonal things. So why would I believe that someone is not going to hurt me in an interpersonal relationship when all I've ever known is being hurt? How? How could I possibly? that? So hope and faith in trusting and keeping my heart open to others when I've had nothing but pain, that is true faith. Because then yes. it's like opening over and over and over. And so that's the fall seven, you know, fall seven times down to eight. It's like open, comma, open, comma, open. It's like you have to remain, I mean, that you have to. And then I know we're coming up on the time. And what I would just want to say is that everything I've just said should be taken with a grain of salt. Because I think back like during the Seymour space, I gave like 300 interviews of magazines all over the world. And it was a, you know, and I was quoted, and I was aware, but it was, it was smart then, but it was at the level of consciousness that I was at then, which mm. certain other people could have been at, let's call it, I don't like, I have a friend, my friend Catherine's always like, don't make it higher or lower. Let's call it like expanded consciousness so that it's more lateral and that we break the hierarchy, which is a sort of patriarchal system, right? Of like up and down. And so if we're heading towards the matriarchy, it's circular and it's more just expansive as opposed to someone is above smarter or understands more or lower. So it's just like expansive consciousness. So let's say my consciousness has expanded since then. And so things that I felt certain about then are, I'm not so certain about now. So it's possible that even though I'm speaking with great certitude today, we'll listen to this in, in two years and I'll be like, oh my God, remember when I thought blah, 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 you know? So, so I think that, you know, people come to information when it's right for them. And some people will listen to what we talked about today and gain something from it. And others will be like, oh, how cute, like that was for me like three years ago, you know, or other people will be like, what the hell are they talking about? I'm not there yet, you know? doesn't doesn't matter you just like have the conversation where you're at and and the people you know I saw that with Seymour like we started with a magazine we start you know it was like the community comes and goes based on what you're offering you know and so now yeah now to close it all up mm. it's play 2022 mm. yes went from I, I spent 10 years talking about my pain and healing my pain and helping people heal their pain through the discussion of me healing mine and now I want to help people heal their pain, but yeah. through playfulness. So instead right. of focusing on what's wrong and what's broken and fixing it, which is what I did for 10 years, now my eyes are clean and I can look at what's right in someone and amplify what's right in them. And that was something that I was never able to do because I wasn't raised that way. I was raised, and I think it's transgenerational wounding, which is why I feel protective of my parents, even though I used to feel tremendously accusatory toward them. I feel compassion for them now because I'm sure that that's all they knew and it was the tough love thing of like you know pointing out something that's wrong 
but then you Mm -hmm. feel like you're wrong all the time. Right. So it's like, that looks awful. Fix that, do that. You know? So then I did that for 10 years, albeit in a loving way. I had people around me and at the seamer space and I'd be like, let's fix that thing that's broken in you. But then that person walks away feeling grateful that I'm helping them, but they're still walking away feeling broken. And as did I, and now I can, heal from a place myself and others or help others heal themselves, I should say, because I no longer feel like I can heal others. I can just help others heal themselves by not noticing what's broken, but noticing what that spark is that you're talking about that you're born with and perhaps amplifying that thing or removing the dust that's occluding their spark. Do you know what I mean? And I think that now that can happen through playfulness, exploration. And that's another thing. I used to believe that I knew some information that could help people. And now I feel like the best way to help someone is to create space for them to help themselves. Do you know what I mean? And and give them tools. And so the space of my mornings and the space of all that kind of stuff is just like allowing for experimentation because people are on different journeys and they're coming from different points and you know, some people are going from mind into body, others are going from body into mind. And, you know, there's all different ways, you know. I just want to ask you one more question. Sure. Because I like to ask this question, which is what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, I don't know if it's advice. The word advice is, seems to be giving me resistance. I would say I would reassure my younger self by telling her that she is always safe, Mm. no matter what. So if we want to reverse engineer that, I would say, you know, even when you're afraid, find some tool to make you feel that you're safe. Do you know what I mean? Because I really believe that that inherent sense of safety that does not come from someone outside yourself is the core to freedom in life. It's the core to risk-taking. It's the core to believing in yourself. It's the core to successful interpersonal relationships and speaking your truth to your lover, to your friend or to whatever, which then creates like, you know, the lovely connections. It's when we don't do those things, it's because we don't feel safe. We feel like someone can annihilate us with a rejection or someone can, you know, so I'm sorry that that's such a convoluted and not sound by the answer. Oh um, God, no, it's I perfect. Think, yeah. No, no, I think thank that you. That's, thank that you that's, for sharing that's, it. That's, I think that that's probably what I would say. No, it's a beautiful answer. It's beautiful. So thank you so much, Melissa. I, I love and adore you. And I love you, you too. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to today's episode of What Do You Believe? Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. We very much appreciate your continued support. Thank you.